Beyond the white lines, professional and collegiate sporting teams, athletes, and apparel lines face fierce trademark challenges posed by rival teams, counterfeiters, and infringers. However, a combination of a powerful legal team, a rock-solid game plan, and superior execution can be an unbeatable combination. Finnegan partner Doug Ratu focuses his practice on trademark, false advertising, design patent, and unfair competition litigation and disputes. He joins us now to share the ins and outs of trademark protection in the sport industry. First of all, Doug, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Let's start off with some of the larger IP issues affecting the sports industry today. What would a few be? I think one very basic issue is to identify and define the different types of rights that are capable of protection. And this can be done a a number of different ways. You could protect different rights uh, via trademark, trade dress, which is the look and feel uh, of a different product, copyright, which protects expressive works, You have design patent, which protects the ornamental features uh, of an article of manufacture. And then you also have the right of publicity, which protects uh, an individual's name, image, or likeness. Can you give us a few examples? One example uh, from a case in the last couple of years is one where a company was making T-shirts that used the color schemes of different universities. But what they had done in that case was they had not actually used the university's names uh, or logos or trademarks. Instead, they had other information that identified or referred to the university with the color scheme. So, for example, there was one T-shirt that had the colors of USC, and it had a slogan, Got Eight. That was a reference to USC's claim to eight college national football championships. So, obviously, the universities uh, were not too happy about this, so they sued the T-shirt company. Uh, And then in that case, the court said that the combination of the team school colors plus these identifying phrases that pointed uniquely to the universities was enough to cause trademark infringement. So the natural lesson from that case is that not only could the schools protect their color schemes, they could stop another company from using that color scheme, even though they hadn't used the university's official trademarks or logos. Are there any other examples that would be relevant? Yes, there's another case which um, arguably had somewhat similar fact pattern, and, and in that case there was an artist who created high-quality paintings of different historical scenes from University of Alabama football. And in that case, the paintings were at one point licensed and uh, eventually were not licensed, and the University of Alabama sued. And their theory was that this infringed their trademarks and the color scheme of their university. In that case, the court said that the colors were protectable in some quarters, but in this situation, they found the colors were not protectable. And there, the, the court said that crimson is a common variation uh, of the red color that's used by many sports teams, uh, and they found that it had a functional purpose of distinguishing the team from its opponents. Now, you could say that that case is limited to certain facts because the court said that the painter couldn't use any of of the university's trademark logos or symbols in his paintings, and the court had limited the decision just to these high-quality prints. It was not Uh, applicable to t-shirts and other merchandising items. So arguably, uh, the cases are distinguishable, but they do show the fundamental point of protecting different types of IP rights for, uh, in this case, uh, universities. Doug, over the past year, U.S. Customs has seized more than $260 million in counterfeit goods, and of that, about 60% affected sporting organizations. What legal strategies should these organizations be implementing to defend their IP rights? Well, I think in the case of counterfeiting, it's very important that companies register their trademarks with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Why is that? 
Well, in the case of counterfeiting, you can't bring a cause of action or a lawsuit for trademark counterfeiting unless you actually have a registration. And with that registration, once you bring the counterfeiting action, it's a very, very powerful enforcement tool. One of the things you can get under certain circumstances is what's called an ex parte temporary restraining order and a seizure. So in other words, you're able to shut the defendant down without notice to him or her, and then you are authorized, if the court gives you the order, to go uh, with a U.S. marshal and actually seize the counterfeiting goods. This is very important because a lot of times, if the defendant has noticed that you're going to do this, they're going to run. They're going to they're going to pack up shop and go. But because these uh, orders are given without notice, you can essentially uh, surprise the defendant, seize the product, and then you get it off the market, and then you have your case, and it, it goes forward. Courts lately have been more receptive to counterfeiting claims because we've been hearing more and more that organized crime and terrorist organizations are behind counterfeiting because it's such such big money now. Any other benefits, Doug? Yeah, one other uh, important benefit, and it's very powerful, is that you can elect to get uh, statutory damages in counterfeiting cases from $200,000 to up to $2 million per counterfeit mark per type of good or service sold. So that is a very effective way of, one, making the uh, infringed party whole, but also to, de- to uh, deter uh, infringers and, and get them to settle cases quickly so that you can get onto the next counterfeiter. And what type of things can be registered? Well, in the U.S., um, there's a lot of different things that can be registered and people don't really realize. Of course, you can register uh, words like Under Armour and things like that. You can register logo, uh, logos and slogans, but you can also register non-traditional marks. And we, we talked earlier about color, but you can register with the Patent and Trademark Office color trademarks, and under certain circumstances, they can be protected. Uh, One example is Boise State has a registration for the color blue for various entertainment services. Uh, Another example is you can actually register a sound trademark. One example is ESPN's theme song for its SportsCenter TV show, and the part of that theme that's registered sounds something like this. Another example is the uh, Harlem Globetrotters have registered the song Sweet Georgia Brown, and that goes something like this. Other things that can be registered uh, that are non-traditional trademarks are things like uh, holograms, And in fact, uh, there's different scents that are registered for things like motor oils and even for um, stationery, for file uh, folders. There's the scent of different fruits like strawberry are registered for those sorts of products. So that's another thing that could be protected. Not necessarily a lot of examples in the sporting good field, but uh, there is certainly potential for that. The ESPN jingle, I assume, was written, I'm thinking anyway, exclusively for for that purpose for SportsCenter. Yet Sweet Georgia Brown was a tune in and of itself before the Globetrotters and then, in a, in a sense, they sort of made it their own, didn't they? Exactly. And, and, and the interesting thing when you get to the sounds is you've got two different protection schemes. You've got copyright, which protects the whole song. So you have to have the rights to the underlying copyright in some way. But then, in order to get trademark rights, you have to use it in a way that indicates source. So for, for the Harlem Globetrotters, for example, when they came out into the court or come out into the court, you'd always hear Sweet Georgia Brown. And in essence, that was their signal. People knew that that equated to the Harlem Globetrotters. But they had to do that for a while for it to become a trademark, for people to understand that that was the source of it. Doug, let's step away from the organizations for a moment and focus on the athletes, and in particular what's called the right to publicity. How can athletes protect their names and likenesses? 
Unlike a trademarks, a patents, or copyrights, there's no registration scheme for uh, athletes to protect their right of publicity. But certain states have statutes and laws that allow the athletes to protect their name, their image, or their likeness. So for the athletes, it's important to be diligent in just looking out at the marketplace, looking at the Internet, looking at the local papers, uh, to see if there's any ads where companies are using that athlete's image or their name or something reminiscent of them, like a nickname. That, in certain states, may be actionable. So being diligent in, in finding the violations and then enforcing them is very important because for these athletes, their name is what they've spent a lot of time building up, and that's it's got a lot of value. And that is something that can be uh, exploited uh, as a very uh, critical intellectual property right. And I assume we see that quite a bit these days, almost as much as the counterfeit goods that we were talking about in the previous question. Yes, and, and, and you know, a lot of times you'll have a situation where a company may have gotten the right to a certain uh, football team to put them in their ads, but that does not mean that they have the right to use the individual athletes in the ads. That is a separate right that has to be cleared, and that's something that either through inadvertence or laziness or greed companies uh, don't do. And so, again, it, it falls upon the athletes and the agents and their lawyers to keep an eye out on the marketplace to make sure that that's not happening. The athletic apparel that each athlete dons before a game continues to attract trademark infringement issues. What are the top trademark issues that apparel lines need to be prepared for these days? Well, it's interesting. Not only do athletes and the teams have valuable intellectual property rights, but the athletic apparel companies have tremendously valuable rights. And you can see it with, I think, the best example of that is is a company like Under Armour. It's a tremendous brand. I mean, you, you just can't walk down the street without seeing people wearing Under Armour products. And they in themselves have their own pull. And that logo has become very valuable. And Under Armour's done a very good job protecting different facets of its intellectual property. You have the name, Under Armour. They've protected that very well. You have the logo, that UA logo that you see. And they also have their slogan, Protect This House. You see that everywhere. And that is something that is, is protected. And, and when I say protect these marks, it's not only registering them at the, at the Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, it's enforcing them. And that is making sure others don't use similar marks. And, and really nowadays with the Internet, it's very easy for people to infringe a company's rights because all of a sudden everybody's a retailer. Before the Internet, you had to actually have your own store and uh, you had to have a brick-and-mortar shop, which was expensive. Nowadays, anybody with a computer can become a retailer. And, and with that, they can offer products that are strikingly similar to uh, these well-known brands. Uh, and they do it, obviously, to poach on the goodwill that's built up in these brands. And it's important for companies to monitor things like eBay and these other smaller Internet shops to make sure that their brand is being protected and there are not copycats out there that are being allowed to be marketed or sold. Well, that's a great point. I, you can walk in any mall or go on any online site, and everybody these days has the ability to customize a hat, a T-shirt, a jacket, or whatever. There's a lot of work, I would imagine, in policing all that. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the difficulties is finding these folks. I mean, they can be on the Internet and you can get their website taken down, but it's not always easy to find out where they're operating from. So that in and of itself is, a, is an art and a science in, in locating and, and enforcing against these infringers. Another point with the Internet is it's obviously not all bad. There's a lot of, of very good things that can happen for a brand owner. And that is, with the ability to send messages to the whole world, brand owners are able to build and, and, and create rights and create a lot of goodwill in their, in their marks by getting their message, getting their advertising out to a lot of people with just the click of a button. Whether it be on Twitter, on Facebook, their own website, 
uh, or even banner ads placed on uh, other companies' websites. These companies are able to reach a lot of people very quickly. And for us, it's very valuable when we go into court and we convince a judge or a jury that these trademarks are very strong, are very well known. This is the type of evidence, among other things, that we're able to submit to prove that point. Our guest has been Doug Ratu, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. To stay current on the latest IP issues, listen to other podcasts in the series, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.